0: Talking about race isn't always easy, which is why Bruce and I couldn't cover what was on our minds in just one session. We know that bridging America's racial divide is going to require concrete policies to address the ongoing legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. But it also requires each of us, in our workplaces, in our politics, in our place of worship, and in a million daily interactions, to make more of an effort to understand each other's realities not to mention our own unspoken attitudes. As a lot of us have learned, whether from a childhood like mine of growing up different or a lifetime partnership like Bruce had with the big man Clarence Clemens, whether from the great old protest songs or the new kinds of protest movements across the country, that kind of reckoning can be uncomfortable, even, or maybe especially, when it's with the people we love. We talked about racial tension and freehold, but when you start what becomes the East Street Band. Right. This was a integrated band. How intentional was that? Or was it a matter of just, man, I'm trying to get the best musicians I can. This is the sound I want.
1: The integrated
0: aspect of the East Street
1: Band obviously was when I saw Clarence. Clarence was just great. He just had a sound that raised the roof. He was just one of the greatest sounding sax players I'd ever heard. Was he older than you? Yeah, Clarence was about eight years older than I was.
0: Okay, so he's he's already he's well into his twenties. Yeah, he's he's, he's been around. He's He's seen some things. Well,
1: he was a uh, he almost went into pro football. And he'd been to college and he'd had some experiences already and ended up somehow an itinerant sax player on the edges of Asbury Park playing in the black clubs at the time, you know. And uh, walked into the club one night, walked up on stage, stood to my right, started playing. And I said, there's something about him and I together. You know, we struck up a friendship, Started to play with the band, and people started to come and respond. And eventually, the band developed. For, it was for a year or two into into being the three white guys and three black guys. Right, and that was around seventy four, I think. And
0: which nobody would know to know, by the way. And I mean, I don't know. No, and I didn't know that because look, I, I hate to date yeah. your brother, but born and run, I was still you were a child. I was in high school, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know uh, that that. You know, you've got half-black, half-white band. Like, I knew the average white band was all white. Well, those are some Scottish guys. Could, and those guys could jam, by the way. Yes, they could. Loved Loved them. <laughs> they are outstanding. You, you knew know. Earth, Wind, and Fire were all black guys. But part of the reason that I wouldn't have necessarily known that is not only did you not have, obviously, the internet and, and video, but music was still pretty... It was categorized very much, and we had a primarily white audience, right? You know? and 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 Clarence isn't on the cover of Time magazine, right? No. So it's 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 Bruce Springsteen looking all with his curly hair, looking cute, <laughs> you know, with his, his bandana and all that. You know, how was the power balance inside the band? Because I'm assuming every team, any group, has some dynamics. And Clarence, on the one hand, is very, he's a an iconic figure in the East Street Band, but he's also still a side man and you are still the front man. You know, I, I always used to talk about how I did notice early on when black folks did start appearing in, in you know bigger roles. Yeah. They were still always like the second guy, right?
1: It's a funny thing because it was a dynamic that both, it both happened naturally and we contrived together at some point, you know? Clarence and I, and there was a moment when I said, hey, see, you know, tomorrow night when I go to the front of the stage and I play this, come on up with me and play it next to me. And we took those steps the next night.
0: It's like a buddy movie on stage.
1: And the crowd went crazy. Mm -hmm. There was an idealism in our partnership where I always felt our audience looked at us and saw the America that they wanted wanted to see and wanted to believe in. And this became the biggest story I ever told. I've never written a song that told a bigger story than Clarence and I standing next next to each other on any of the 1,001 nights that, that we played. He lent his power to my story, and like I said, the story that we told together, which was about the distance between the American dream and American reality.
0: But part of what you're describing also, though, is he provided something to you, Personally, and to the band that helped capture what would end up being your sound, your uh, spirit. Yeah, but what you're also saying, though, is is that at some level, look, uh, here's an older black man who's been hustling out there for a long time. Yeah, he's got he's got he's got to hook up with a young white. The old skinny white kid, who you know? is less experienced than him. Now it works out beautifully for both of you. Yeah. But yeah, you know, there's also complications, right, to that whole relationship. And and I don't know if you guys ever talked about it. He had to give
1: a little more than I had to give in the sense that once the keyboardist and drummer left, it left Clarence as the he was the only black man in the room a lot of times.
0: You know, uh, being in the band, you know, you see very few black people in the shows, you know? And and I look for it, you know? But he's not being marketed that way, and so
1: very few black people get a chance to hear him.
0: Uh, I don't know whether...
1: He had to swim in white culture
0: for most of his work life, Right. you know? I actually wrote about this in my first book. Those friends of mine that I was talking about who had been friends of mine at school, they're, you know, white, Hawaiian, Filipino, I'm making friends with these older black kids who were taking me to parties on the base, and I I tell the story about inviting those guys along, and we get out to the party. And I look over at those guys, and they are cool, but they are also experiencing for the first time in their lives what I have to go through a bunch. Yeah. Where they're the only white guys in the room or non black guys in the room, right? This
1: happened to us on the Ivory Coast. Yeah. (laughs) We went and it was during the Amnesty International tour and we came out to a stadium of entirely black faces.
0: Right.
1: And we stand there for a moment and Clarence comes over and he says, Well, now you know how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say that? Yeah. How'd the concert go? And we started to play. And it was about 60 seconds of everybody just kind of staring into each other's eyes. And then the place Exploded. <laughs> exploded. was simply the most generous audience we've ever played in front of to this day. But Clarence had, it it, it was difficult for him and it was painful for him at at different times. And we did talk about it usually on on evenings when for some reason or another, we were reminded of it. Such as? Um, Well, Clarence and I went out one evening to a local club, a friend of his. And I was watching the band, and the next thing I see Clarence is at the front door, and there's a scuffle going on. And we go up, and, and uh, Clarence has got a couple of guys pinned down, and the owner has got a, a guy pinned down, and everybody breaks apart. And the owner obviously throws them out. On their way out, one of the guys... Says the N-word, you know? Um, it was funny, you know, he had been around. He was a pretty worldly guy, but he disappears. And I go out in the parking lot looking for him because I, I don't know where these other guys have gone. I don't know where he might've gone. And he was just standing on near the hood of a car, just. And he looked at me. I remember. I said, "Brucey, why did they say that? I play football with those guys every Sunday. Same people. Why did they say that? And rather than saying, you know, well they're assholes, or, 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 I just said I don't know." I don't know what that's about. You know, where does uh, it come from? Yeah. And, where?
0: and 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 why, why would you pull that out? Because uh, the same thing happened to me, listen, when I was in school, I had a friend, we played basketball together, and one time we got in a fight and he called me a coon. Uh, now, first of all, ain't no coons in Hawaii, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's one of those things where, He might not even (laughs) know what a kuma. What he knew was, I can hurt you by saying this. And I remember I popped him in the face and broke his nose. And we were in the locker room. Well done. And suddenly blood's pouring (laughs) down. And it was just reactive. I just, I said, what? And I popped him. And he said, why'd you do that? (laughs) And I explained to him, I said, don't you ever call me something like that. But the point is that what it comes down to is an assertion of status over the other. The claim is made that no matter what I am, I, I may be poor, I may be ignorant, I may be mean, I may be ugly, I may not like myself, I may be unhappy, But you know what I'm not? Yeah. I'm not you. And that basic psychology that then gets institutionalized is used to justify dehumanizing somebody, taking advantage of them, cheating them, stealing from them, killing them, raping them, whatever it is. At the end of the day, really comes down to that. And in some Cases. It's, it's as simple as, you know, I'm scared I'm insignificant and not important. And I this thing is the thing that's gonna give me some importance.
1: When I first saw you, you sort of spoke to a broad sense of American hopefulness. And there was something in Clarence's presence of that quality. And it's what made our band so powerful when we came to your town at night. We addressed all these issues. We didn't speak necessarily directly about them. But, you're but telling there was stories something, that- yeah. And that partnership was, it was just real. You know, I was at his bedside when he took his last breath and he was such a strong figure for me, um, but um, you miss him. Yeah, yeah. We him, of course. See, it was you know, forty-five years of your life. You don't, you know, you don't. Uh, it's never something that comes again, you know. It, it forty-five years. And the only thing we never kidded ourselves about was that race didn't matter. We lived together. We traveled throughout the United States. And we were probably as close as two people could be. Yet at the same time, I always had to recognize there was a part of Clarence that I wasn't ever really gonna exactly know, and uh, it was a relationship unlike any other that I've ever had in my, ever had in my life. After George Floyd's murder, I started reading James Baldwin. And this passage always stuck with me. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and maybe never, the Negro problem will no longer exist for it will no longer be Be needed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The legacy of race is buried. But it's always there, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's depending on the community you're in, it's it's how far near the surface it is is not always clear. You know, I think a lot of black folks always talk about how what's hardest is not dealing with a Klansman. That, you know. That you can figure out. You are prepared and you are geared up. What cuts is people who you know aren't bad people. And the fact that that card is still in their pocket and that at some unexpected moment it might be played, yeah. is heartbreaking, yeah. because that's where you realize, oh, this is a, a deep, big piece of business, and it's not a matter of not using racial epithets, and it's not just a matter of you know uh, yeah. voting for Barack Obama. I, uh, yeah, that's I, why that movie, uh, I, did you see that movie Get Out? I did. And so when the when the, the father who turns out to be crazy, <laughs> right, starts saying, man, I'd vote for Obama a third time. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the point that, that that line is making. And this is a moment when it feels,
1: as a country, we've got to have that conversation. You know, if we want to create a more honest and adult and noble America and one that's worthy of, of its ideals and on the day that John Lewis was was buried is certainly not a day you can be cynical about the possibilities of America. No, you
0: know, that, 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 <laughs> but, but I think John embodied this very particular brand of courage, right? It was a courage and trust in the redemptive power the ability to say, here I stand, do your worst, I believe that at some point there is a conscience that will be awakened, that there is a a, a force in you that will see me, right? And he never gave up that hope. And this summer, to see the protests that were taking place, I told John, and I said this in the eulogy, John, these are your children. (laughs) They might not have known it. Yeah. But you helped give birth to that sense of right and wrong in them. You helped infuse them with that expectation that we're better than we are. You know, my mother used to say sometimes, if I wasn't acting right, she said, listen, I don't necessarily care if you believe in what I've told you to do, but if you do it often enough, (laughs) that's who you're gonna be. Uh, And I think that there's a little bit of an element of young people saying, you've told us this is who we're supposed to be, that all people are equal, and we treat everybody with respect. and, And you've told it to us often enough that maybe you didn't even believe it, but we now do believe it. And we're gonna force you to adapt your behavior and your policies and your institutions and your laws to what you told us was true. Because you know you may have been painting a fantasy to make yourself feel better, but we believed it. And now we're gonna try to make it true. And that's why as long as protest and activism uh, doesn't veer into violence, my general attitude is, I want and expect young people to push those boundaries and to to te- test and try the patience of their parents and their grandparents. And you know, uh, I I remind young activists that I meet with. I said, look, uh, if you want my advice about how you can get a law passed or get enough votes to put in power people. I can mm-hmm. give you some practical advice, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that should be your goal. Sometimes your goal may just be to- Stir shit up. Stir shit up <laughs> and 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 open up new possibilities.
1: How do you hold the same country that sent man to the moon with being the same country of Jim Crow? You don't make peace with that, obviously, but how do you sort of hold that being the same America?
0: I think that it is partly because we never went through a true reckoning, and so we just buried one huge part of our experience and our citizenry in our minds.
1: Now, you mentioned that a reckoning hadn't taken place, so here we sit today where it feels like a reckoning is being called for, you know? Is the country ready to deconstruct it's founding myths, it's it's mythic stories, it's mythic history, or is it prepared to consider reparations? Do you think we're at that place right now?
0: So if you ask me, theoretically, are reparations justified? The answer is yes. There's not much question, right, that the wealth of this country, the power of this country was built in significant part, not exclusively, maybe not even the majority of it, but a large portion of it was built on the backs of slaves.
1: The White House, my,
0: my uh, They built, they built the, uh, the, the house I stayed in <laughs> for a while. <laughs> what is also true is that. Even after the end of formal slavery and the continuation of Jim Crow, the systematic oppression and discrimination of Black Americans resulted in Black families not being able to build up wealth, not being able to compete. And that has generational effects. So if you're thinking of what's just, you would look back and you would say, the descendants of those who suffered those kinds of terrible, cruel, often arbitrary injustices deserve some sort of redress, some sort of compensation, a recognition.
1: How do you as president, knowing all of the above, Push or prepare the nation for something that feels, as you say, so justified
0: Well, and, or not. And so this then brings us to, could you actually get that kind of justice? Could you get a country to agree and own that history? And my judgment was that as a practical matter, that was unattainable we can't even get this country to provide decent schooling for inner city kids. And what I saw during my presidency was that the politics of white resistance and resentment, the talk of welfare queens and the talk of the undeserving poor and the backlash against affirmative action. All that made the prospect of actually proposing any kind of coherent, meaningful reparations program struck me as politically, not only a non-starter, but potentially counterproductive, And it's perfectly understandable why working-class white folks, middle-class white folks, folks who are having trouble paying the bills or dealing with student loans or, you know, don't have health care, where they feel like government has let them down, wouldn't be thrilled with the idea of a massive program that is designed to deal with the past, but isn't speaking to their future.
1: You're saying we live in a country where We can do that for bankers on Wall Street, but we can't do it for a part of the population that's been struggling for so long.
0: Well, I promise you, white folks don't like that either. But look, even though I was convinced the reparations was a non-starter during my presidency, I understand the argument of people I respect, like Ta-Nehisi Coates, that we should talk about it anyway. If for no other reason than to educate the country about a past that too often isn't taught, and let's face it, we'd rather forget. not been remedied,
2: it is only deepened. And H.R. 40, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals, is the answer to the original sin. It is, in
0: fact, and it goes back full circle to everything we've been talking about the bridge between America as it is and as we mythologize it to be. The only way that you can bring those two things together is to do an honest accounting and then do the work. I'm not willing, and I know you aren't either, to abandon the ideal because the ideal is worthy. Mm -hmm. But the ideal, this more perfect union of ours, is far from where... The reality has been.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And and so there are some who argue, let's just get rid of the ideal. I, I think you need a North Star. You need some place uh, to point I'm to. I'm completely with you on that. But what I also think is you, you can't get to where you want to go if you don't know where you are. Absolutely. First thing is to get your current coordinates. And I think what I've
1: been shocked about recently is finding our current coordinates were not quite as as, as firm as Fixed. firm as i thought they were
0: <laughs> you, you know you thought we'd already we, already, we had already passed uh, some of those landmarks. In, I thought
1: the marching in the polo shirts with your tiki torches. <laughs> I <laughs> thought that that was kind of over,
0: you yeah, know? Yeah, uh, yeah, you thought you thought we weren't debating Nazism anymore? Yeah, that sort of... That just <laughs> you those, thought that was settled those, back in 45?
1: Those, those little things, you know? Yeah. I, I'd been led to believe, like, well, you know, and, and so to find out that these are not just you know meandering veins in our extremities but that continue to be in our order and running through the heart of the country that that's that that's a call to arms and and uh, you know let's just know obviously how much how much work we have left
0: yeah i always say to people i, I believe in the upward forward trajectory of humankind I'm with you on that, but I do not believe that it is a straight and steady line. It's very I, crooked. <laughs> I, it, you are zigging and zagging, and that's you go right. backwards and you do some loops. The arc of and uh, the
1: arc of history was that it the yeah, <laughs> arc, arc, arc of
0: moral universe yeah. is long. It bends towards justice, but not right in right. a straight line. Not in a straight line. You can bend down, and 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 that's been true uh, throughout our history. Yeah, we talked about civil rights. We talked about rock and roll, music, and social change, and lightning round best protest songs. (laughs) All right. So, top three or
1: four or five? How many you can think of? I would say "Fight the Power," "Public Enemy."
0: That is a great song.
1: Anarchy in the U.K., The Sex Pistols, or God Save the Queen. It's a great, those are great protest
0: songs. Maggie's Farm is a great protest Fabulous. song. <laughs> I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. You sound good. <laughs> I ain't gonna work on Maggie's farm no more. <laughs> a change is gonna come. Oh, yeah. I, I'm Sam cool. Cooke. Beautiful. I was born. That song can make me cry. There is something about when he starts singing. The
1: historical pain that's in it. And yet the elegance and generousness of his voice.
0: And Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. Boom, to the top of the list, you know? You know what's a great protest song? Yeah. Although people don't think of it as a protest song. Okay. Respect, Aretha Franklin.
1: One of the best. R E S P C T. (laughs) Right?
0: I mean, that's a protest song.
1: That is one of the best.
0: She is saying to every man out there. (laughs) Get your act together. That is one of the best. That's for sure. But it's not, you know, it's it's not it's not a it's not a lecture. No, I think
1: my my favorite protest songs are the ones that captured captured spirit more than than any particular particular diatribe or a.
0: a no, that, that that doesn't work.
1: You know that 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 doesn't work. But um.
0: Well, you know, here's a good example. Forty One Shots is about a very specific event that happened and. And, and by the way, we should remind everyone what happened. You know, it's a sign of our age that although the story sadly has been repeated many times, uh, many times uh, since then, uh, a lot of folks may not remember exactly what happened.
1: Well, Amadou Diallo was an African immigrant who, uh, in a case of mistaken identity, uh, was stopped by the police. He, he was in his vestibule of an apartment building. He went to reach for his wallet, and was shot 19 times, 41 total shots being fired by the officers who were
0: acquitted. And 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 important for context, these officers were in plain clothes. That's so right. So Diallo doesn't even necessarily know why these four guys are telling him to stop and suggesting that they somehow got business with him.
1: Possibly not. But but where the song came from was this incident occurs and I start to think about it. And I go, okay, skin, skin is destiny. You know, um, It's like, what a privilege it is to forget that you live in a particular body. Yeah. White people can do that, black people can't do that. So that was what was at the center of that piece of music. And the rest was addressing our mutual fear of one another. It all starts with fear. Hatred comes later, but it all starts with fear. Everything we've got going in our uh, systemic, systemic racism we have here in America today, where does it come from? People are scared. What are they scared of? Demographic change. They're scared of the country becoming some place where black and brown voices become louder more influential more powerful more equal
0: losing st- losing status
1: yeah losing status that's a big part of what we have i'm going to maybe play a little bit of this
0: this sure, go ch- ahead man yeah you know, uh, let's let's give let's get a little sample all
1: right
3: that ride cross this bloody river to the other side 41 shots cut through the night you're kneeling over his body in the vestibule praying for
0: Did you get any kind of reaction after you heard that? And there was some booing.
3: We
1: took a lot of heat from the police after, for, for several years after that. And there were some police officers giving us the New Jersey State Bird, which I always felt was a result of, of not listening to it, <laughs> really, you know. say if you listen to it, it's, we'll it never felt fundamentally controversial, you know? It wasn't a diatribe, it wasn't a finger-pointing song particularly, you know? It just tried to, it tried to tally up shots. the human cost Got my boots. and what we all pay for in blood of those kinds of Killings and murders that go on day after day. I mean, this song is 20 years old.
3: This song is it
1: as as 20 years old.
3: Is it, is it a night? Is it a while? This is your life. It ain't no secret. It ain't no secret. No secret, my friend. You can get killed just for living. Yeah. You can get killed just for living. Yeah. You can get killed just for living. Yeah. Your American skin. This is
1: what we pay in blood for not having sorted through these issues.
3: 1
1: shot for not having come to terms with with one another
3: 41 shots, 41 shots.
1: it just goes on 41
3: shots 41 shots
2: Renegades Born in the USA is a Spotify original presented and produced by Higher Ground Audio in collaboration with Dustlight Productions. From Higher Ground Audio, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Joe Paulson are executive producers. Carolyn Lippmann And Adam Sachs are consulting producers. Janae Marable is our editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Misha Youssef and Arwen Nix are executive producers. Elizabeth Nakano, Mary Knopf, and Tamika Adams are producers. Mary Knopf is also editor. Andrew Epen is our composer and mix engineer. Rainier Harris is our apprentice. Transcriptions by David Rodriguez. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dust Light Development and Operations Coordinator. Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt are executive producers for Spotify. Gimlet and Lydia Polgreen are consulting producers. Music Supervision by Search Party Music. From the great state of New Jersey, special thanks to John Landau, Tom Zimney, Rob Lebret. Rob DeMartin and Barbara Carr we also want to thank Adrian Gerard Marilyn Laverty Tracy Nurse Greg Lynn and Betsy Whitney and a special thanks to Patty Scalfa for her encouragement and inspiration and to Evan Jess and Sam Springsteen from the District of Columbia thanks to Christina Shockey, Mackenzie Smith Katie Hill Eric Schultz Caroline Adler Morales, Maron Heli-Meskel, Alex Platkin, Kristen Bartoloni, and Cody Keenan. And a special thanks to Michelle, Malia, and Sasha Obama. This is Renegades, born in the USA.